0: Now our next uh, presenter, uh, you're in for a treat today. Uh, Rob McDonald is a professor of uh, history, American history at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Known him for a long time uh, since since you were an undergraduate at the University of Virginia and I would go down there and yammer about freedom and limited government and all those things. And he's since gone on to become an acclaimed and distinguished uh, scholar of the American founding period, and especially Thomas Jefferson. And he was the person who identified uh, Jefferson's uh, diaries and notebooks. Notebook is really the better term. uh, In the archives, that no one else had known what these things were. And he figured out, uh, since it was in Jefferson's handwriting, perhaps it was by Jefferson. This is a great... (laughs) Uh, achievement. (laughs) And he has another book that is coming out. And I wish we had been able to have copies here, but it's not coming out until next month. There's information there. It's going to be a great read. I've read a number of his pieces. He's an elegant writer, and you will find out he's also a very elegant speaker and teacher, Rob.
1: Well, it is just great to, uh, to be here as always, and uh, I, I, I love Cato University, um, and I, I, I gather from my discussions with so many people that I'm not alone. It's so nice to have a week um, where you could kind of unplug and stop thinking about what you normally think about and think about these things that are really important, that really matter, um, and, and what could be more important than freedom and the ideas of liberty um, and the successes that people have enjoyed as well as the, the failures that they have endured, um, and we can learn from those as well, and I think there's a, a lot of learning to be done from the cases of jamestown and, uh, and Plymouth. Um, when we When we think about early America, when we think about um, the, the origins of, of what would become the United States, um, we think about this this band of uh, british North American colonies that, that took root on the edge of the Atlantic. Um, there was a lot that would ultimately come to divide them. Um, they were founded by different groups of people for different reasons. Um, some were founded uh, essentially just to try to make money. Others were, were founded for um, uh, religious uh, reasons, people who were being oppressed in the old world wanted to find shelter in the new world where they could worship as they chose. Um, Some were were established for a number of different reasons. Um, They ultimately um, would find that what they had in common was a love of freedom. Um, The freedom to be able to freely exchange goods with one another, as well as ideas with one another. Those are some of the things that would motivate them, ultimately, to declare independence from Great Britain. And later on today, I'll have the opportunity to, uh, to talk to you about that topic. Um, But before they even got there, um, when they first got here, in the earliest days of settlement, the uh, experiences of the people, first in colonial Virginia and then uh, about a decade later in Plymouth, Massachusetts, were uh, anything but easy. The the image that many of us might have of, of colonial America, this notion that there were people in you know, fancy gowns and tri-cornered hats, powdered wigs, dancing minuets. Um, I guess those days would come for some in places like, uh, Williamsburg or Philadelphia. Um, but in the earliest days, the, the people who settled in the American colonies, um, found not, uh, finery, but famine. Um, they found not a fancy dress, but, but devastation. Um, they found uh, not dances, but death. And one of the things, one of the great mysteries of American history, um, of course, predates both Jamestown and Plymouth, and, and that's the, uh, the famous lost colony at, at Roanoke. And uh, you know the story, it's, it's the 1580s and the, uh, the English bring a bunch of uh, English people across the Atlantic and they they land on the Outer Banks of North Carolina and they try to establish this colony um, and the, uh, the ship goes back to England and then the, the Spanish Armada shows up and everyone kind of gets distracted and they forget about Roanoke for a while and then they finally go back and, you know, poof, everything, everything. The people, the buildings are gone. And the only sort of trace of humanity that is left is this uh, mysterious word written on a tree, Croatoan. You know, what does that mean? And there are a number of different theories. Uh, uh, Some people uh, believe that there was a a native group um, who were called the Croatoan and that this was the settlers' way of signaling that they had um, sought shelter with this group. They had gone to live with this group to survive. Uh, other uh, people have theorized that no, they were they were taking note of the fact that they were slaughtered by this group, or in the process of being slaughtered by this group. Um, others have uh, other theories. Um, I'm I'm uh, in part. Uh, Irish, uh, in terms of my ancestry, and I remember my, my parents had this soft cover book called How the Celts Discovered America. It seems that every ethnic group has has its, you know, we were the ones who discovered America story. Uh, I, I had a friend who um, is married to uh, a woman from Croatia, and apparently... Um, Uh, There are Croatian Americans who suggest that the Croatians got here first, and that's what the people at at Roanoke were signaling. They were going to live with the Croatians. Uh, Who knows, right? Maybe space aliens, maybe space aliens beamed up the settlers um, and took them on board the ship and, you know, examined them extensively. Uh, We just don't know. It is a mystery what happened to these settlers. But when you start to look at the experiences of places like Jamestown and Plymouth, um, I, I think that the mystery begins to get solved. And I think that there are some common sense um, theories that we could come up with because um, we can apply the, the shared and common experiences of the settlers of Jamestown, Virginia, and Plymouth, Massachusetts, to the people of Roanoke and think that what almost happened in Jamestown, what almost happened in Plymouth, maybe that's what happened um, to those people who lived there on the Outer Banks. Um, I refer specifically um, uh, first to Jamestown, which was established in 1607. We'll get to, uh, to Plymouth, Massachusetts, um, you know, where the May- Mayflower landed in 1620 in a few minutes. In uh, Jamestown, if you go today, it's, it's, it's a wonderful place. Um, and they have uh, done a lot of archeological work recently. Um, they have uncovered the uh, footprint of the original uh, fort that was there, um, that the, the settlers built. Um, It is um, stirring and uh, inspiring and interesting. Um, However, if you were to have arrived at Jamestown in 1607, you would perhaps not be quite as stirred and perhaps not quite as uh, interested in all the, uh, the, the things that were around you. You have been focused on one thing and one thing only, and that's survival. Jamestown. Jamestown was uh, a place of great despair, great misery, and great uh, numbers of of people who died. I mean, Jamestown was a death trap. Uh, When the people arrived in Jamestown, they they came for um, largely one reason. The people who settled in Jamestown probably can't really be called settlers. They're best described as adventurers. Settlers are are people who arrive in the new world with the intention of settling, of staying, of establishing a permanent colony. The the Virginia Company, which sponsored the Jamestown expedition, their intention was that Jamestown should become a permanent colony, but not even the Virginia Company expected that early on the, uh, the population would be permanent. The idea is that people from England would cross the ocean, spend some time in Virginia, hopefully get rich, get rich for themselves as well as gain wealth for the Virginia company, the the private investors who sponsored this enterprise, um, and then return to England. Essentially, there were two types of people who arrived in Jamestown. Um, Some of the people who were also investors themselves were the second or third or fourth born sons of the English gentry. Uh, Essentially, if you were the first born son, Uh, you were, uh, you know, you had it made. You would inherit uh, your father's land. You would inherit your father's title. Um, You know, your your life was already scripted. But if you were the second-born son or the third or the fourth or the fifth or what have you, the number of options that were available to you were somewhat limited. Um, Very, very unfortunately for the English, um, their nobility really kind of looked down upon um, business enterprise. Um, so, so getting your hands dirty, making money—that uh, was—that was sort of frowned upon. But, but you could be a member of the clergy, or you could be an officer in the army or the navy, or um, you know, maybe you could be a professor at Oxford or Cambridge. Um, you could have some sort of job like that. Um, but the problem was, you know, then as now, those occupations were ones that provided a great deal of wealth. And these second and third born sons thought that in Virginia, they might get rich quick. If they could hop the Atlantic, if they could arrive in Jamestown, they might find in Virginia what the Spanish had found in America. What had the Spanish found in America? Gold, right? So this was to be a great gold mining operation. And the Virginia Company of London, these private investors, who you know, put forward the, the funds necessary for this uh, enterprise, they hoped that, that these people would strike it rich and find gold. Now, not everybody who was part of the, uh, the party that landed um, in the three ships at Jamestown in, in 1607, there was the, the, uh, the Susan Constant, um, the Eleanor, and the, the, the Godspeed, um, and, you know, if you go there, they have models of these ships on display now, and the ships are very impressive. They're very impressive in how small they are. And the thought of crossing the Atlantic on these ships is just, it's just mind-blowing. Um, and they must have been so relieved when they arrived. Um, and they must have been very relieved as well, these second- and third-born sons of the gentry, um, because I think they expected that their component of the Enterprise Uh, would not have to do much of the work. A lot of the work they thought would be done by the other category of people uh, who had joined them on those ships. Um, And those were a number of laborers, a number of laborers who they had hired to help them in this mining operation. Um, A lot of people whose whose occupations um, ended with the word smith, right? They were silversmiths and blacksmiths, um, metal workers, urban artisans primarily. Though no, not a lot of people were part of this enterprise, who had much experience growing food. There weren't a whole lot of people who had much experience toiling in the soil of the English countryside. And uh, this is one of the things that I think is probably going to end up working against the settlers at, uh, at, at, at Jamestown. They, uh, they also suffered um, on another account. Because these people arrived and thought that they would get rich, find gold, right, and get rich and return to England, the The demographic makeup of, of this group was very skewed. For, for one thing, they were almost exclusively male. So these are a bunch of guys. And not only are these a bunch of guys, they're a bunch of very young guys, you know, the, the Average uh, age was somewhere in the, in the 20s. You have some teenagers, a lot of people in the 20s, a few 30-year-olds, people in their 40s were you know, at the very high end of the, uh, the age range. So these guys are young and they're single. They have a short-term perspective. A lot of them aren't used to working very hard. This is not exactly a recipe for success. And and there are a number of things that, a number of factors that are at play that I think go against the success of of the Jamestown experiment. In addition to these demographic factors, in addition to the short-term perspective that many people had, and you could see how that would come into play. You know, if you think that you might only be there for uh, a summer, perhaps you wouldn't work to construct shelter for yourself that would sustain you through the winter. If you thought that maybe you'd get rich and return, um, you know, within just a year, maybe you wouldn't care so much about establishing a firm basis for the financial success of the colony. Maybe maybe you would be focused, you know, more exclusively just on yourself. Um, There were other things that complicated their efforts. Um, We know, for example, that there was great difficulty growing crops. Now, why is this? As as you saw from uh, the title slide, I I have a theory. And the theory is borne out by much of the evidence um, that we have from the Jamestown colony. The Virginia Company of London, it wanted people to focus on making money for the Virginia Company of London. It did not want people moonlighting Um, and working for themselves. It thought one team, one fight, you know, stronger together. That's what it had to say. We're stronger if we work together, not as individuals. So let's not have private property. Let's have common growing fields. We will all go out into the fields together. We will all equally invest our labor into toiling in the fields. And at the end of the growing season, we will all share equally in the bounty that results. What could possibly go wrong, right? And, and, and so the system of collective agriculture was going to be utterly devastating. Um, in 1609 and 1610, just a couple of years into the Jamestown experiment. You know, by which point these people who had plenty of time to get their act together, these people who had, had guns, these people who had opportunities to hunt and fish in addition to grow food, um, these people who were beginning to get app- acclimated to the climate and the uh, seasons of Virginia, these people were still starving. In the fall of 1609, there were 500 people in the colony. The Virginia Company of London kept sending people over on these boats. They knew that mortality was high, but they were resolved. They were not going to allow whatever had happened at Roanoke to happen again. They were going to keep this colony going. They kept bringing people over. They kept resupplying the population. There were 500 people that fall. But during the course of the winter, due in some, in part, to disease, but due mostly to starvation, nearly all of those people died. Of the 500 who were there in the fall, by the spring, only 60 were left alive. Only 60 survived, and and it's here where we see some of the only authentic examples of cannibalism in Virginia. One provident man um, chopped up his wife and salted down the pieces. Others dug up graves to eat the corpses. What a complete and utter disaster. Now, some people have suggested that one of the reasons they they experienced so much failure at their efforts to grow crops is that the climate was really working against them. We we can look at uh, tree rings and and see that around the time of 1607, 1608, 1609, the tree rings are, are, are much more narrow than they normally would be, suggesting that there was something of a drought. That certainly would make it more difficult to grow corn but it didn't make it impossible to grow corn because we know that they were able to trade with the Indians to obtain some corn so the Indians were growing it If the Indians could do it they could do it uh, there's another possibility another thing that might have complicated their situation um, it has to do with uh, the fact that there appears to have been less rainfall as well because they were there at the James River Um, the the water was quite brackish. It was quite salty. Um, If there was less uh, uh, rainwater runoff into the james, and if the wells that they dug weren't being refreshed with rainwater, the salinity of the water that they drank might have been greater uh, than what is healthy uh, for people to drink. Apparently, if you drink um, too much salty water for too long, um, it could have a, a deleterious effect on, on your ability to, to think. It could slow you down, uh, make you mentally sluggish. Perhaps they were suffering as a result of that. Um, but they also appear to be suffering, and I, I think this is the thing that's really the clincher, from this system of collective agriculture. Um, in 1611, uh, a man who, who arrived um, to become the new governor Uh, Thomas Dale observed that in Jamestown, nothing was planted except some few seeds put into a private garden or two. Meanwhile, he found the inhabitants engaged in their daily and usual works, bowling in the streets. I mean, what a disaster. What an utter disaster. So nothing in May had been planted in the common fields. Nothing, and only a few seeds. And he's, he's not trying to make the case against collecti- collective agriculture. This is just his observation. Just a few private gardens or two, you know, which people had thought, you know what? This is clearly not working out. This, this common field in which we're all supposed to labor. I, I remember what it was like last year, they probably said. I went on out there. We all went on out there. We were all ready to work. We all rolled up our sleeves. It's awful out there, of course. I mean, really, we're, we're above that. We're English aristocrats, after all. And, you know, toiling in the hot fields of Virginia while you're wearing wool underwear and plate mail is really unpleasant. Um, we know it's important. We know you're supposed to do it. Although I did get resentful. When a few of those guys essentially called in sick, said they weren't feeling well, I wasn't feeling very well either. It was hot. I got lightheaded. That water is not nearly as refreshing as that water that I remember back in, back in England. Um, they, they went home. They shirked their duties. They were contributing 0% of the labor, but they were still going to receive their fair share of the crop that resulted uh, from the harvest. And I figured, so would I. And why should I have to work when they weren't? So I called in sick too, and then everyone else did. And then we all got, you know, our fair share of nothing. This time, I'll plant my own garden. This time, I will invest 100% of the labor, but I will get 100% of the bounty that results. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that that's what some people had in mind. And it's pretty clear that Thomas Dale caught on to this fact because he changed the regime by which property was held in Jamestown. in, in, in uh, well, contrary to the instructions of the Virginia Company of London, he divided the land up into parcels, and he assigned it to, to individuals. You are responsible for growing your own food." And the results. The results were impressive. In uh, 1615, a settler named Ralph uh, Hamer noted that when our people were fed out of the common store and labored jointly in the manuring of the ground and planting corn, glad was that man that could slip from his labor, nay, the most honest of them in general business, would take so much faithful and true pains in a week as now he will do in a day. In other words, now, with private property, we work seven times harder, seven times faster. And guess what? The starvation that had plagued Virginia since the beginning now came to an end. You know, all of these demographic factors are still largely present. You still have this mix of urban artisans and the second and third-born sons of gentry. You know, the, the weather hasn't changed significantly. It's still relatively dry. They still have a short-term perspective. There still aren't women and families and children and other uh, you know, factors that would cause these young men to say, perhaps I need to be a little bit more responsible. The one thing that's changed is the way that property is chopped up, the way that uh, the incentives have changed for people to work hard on their own land. And Virginia is now going to begin to grow another crop. Uh, Another crop that is gonna turn out to be perhaps almost as valuable as the gold that they had originally sought but never found. And that crop of course was tobacco. And uh, tobacco is where we will continue the story of Virginia in a few minutes. But, But now I wanna look at uh, this, the story of Plymouth, of Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620. Um, in so many respects, Plymouth is a very different situation from that of Virginia. If at Jamestown, there were a number of pe- peculiar disadvantages, if at Jamestown, they had an imbalance in the gender ratio, if in Jamestown, they had um, the, uh, the reality that the people weren't really settlers, but they were just short-term adventurers, if in Virginia um, you have the, the reality that most people are, are, are young guys in their 20s, hate to stereotype here, but perhaps one could make the argument that on average you know, 20-year-old guys aren't the most responsible people in the world. Right? That's not the case in, in Plymouth. In Plymouth, you have a very different thing taking place. You have a a pre-existing community of people that spans three generations. You know, people who got on board the Mayflower were grandparents and parents and children. And they were not strangers with many of the other people who were on board the Mayflower. They were members of the same church, the same congregation. They had already been through a lot together, many of them Um, had left England together because they were persecuted for their faith. Um, They went to to Holland together. Um, There, they they discovered um, that while they enjoyed religious toleration, everything was just too tolerant. Their kids were eating hash brownies, wearing wooden shoes, listening to ABBA records, speaking Hollish, or whatever it's called, and... And uh, they thought, this is not the sort of world we want to inhabit. We want to strike out and establish a new and improved England, a-, a land that will be a city on a hill, a beacon to the world of how to live a good and godly life. You see, if the people of Jamestown were motivated by money, the motivations of the people at Plymouth, in and, and, and some ways... Uh, they could not have been more ambitious. They could not have been more idealistic. In in, in Virginia, you have a short-term perspective. We're going to go, we're going to get rich quick, we're going to head back to England. These people, these people who arrived in Plymouth, I mean, their commitment to each other and their commitment to God, right, was so great that they were willing to get on board this tiny little ship, the Mayflower, and, and cross the Atlantic Ocean, and and establish a new and permanent colony in this new and improved England and never go back home. And and when you think about the degree to which they uprooted their lives, the degree to which they had cut themselves off from the world as they knew it, I mean, you'd have more contact and a far greater chance of survival, by the way, You'd have more contact with, with the world you know on the International Space Station today than, than you would in Plymouth, Massachusetts back then. I mean, these people, they, they, they could not have had stronger convictions and in many respects, more elevated motivations. They had plenty of fresh water. If you go to Plymouth, Massachusetts, one of the, uh, the things that you will see is uh, You know, in addition to the recreated village, the original village, um, the actual village, which was set up along what is still the heart of Plymouth, Massachusetts, is right by a freshwater spring. They had no problems with drought. But they did have something in common with the settlers at Jamestown. They, too, were an enterprise funded by a group of private investors back in London. They, too, had to report to this company and abide by its rules. It did not anticipate that they would discover gold in New England. It did anticipate that they could make a whole lot of money by engaging in the fur trade. And that was supposed to be their focus. That was supposed to be their number one business. And like the Virginia company down in in Jamestown, in Plymouth, the investors did not want people moonlighting. It did not want people working for themselves. It wanted people instead to be focused on making money for the company. So once again, they established a regime of collective agriculture. Once again, the expectation was that individuals were going to go off into the fields, that they were all going to equally invest their labor equally toil together under the sun, and come harvest time, they would equally share in the bounty that would result. Again, what could possibly go wrong? And and honestly, that's not a crazy question In, in the case of Plymouth. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, think about it. The guys in Jamestown, they didn't really know each other. Right? They were all single people. They were all worried, you know, mostly about themselves and apparently they weren't that worried. Bunch of irresponsible 20-year-olds. The the people who arrive in Plymouth, these are moms and dads, grandparents, kids. These are existing families and they have a long-term perspective. They have permanently transplanted themselves from the old world to the new world. They they had struck out on this noble experiment for the glory of God, right? They they had uh, demonstrated the firmness of their faith by their decision to to get on board the Mayflower and cross the Atlantic Ocean, risking their lives in the process to settle this, this new and strange wilderness. If any group of people could make collective agriculture work, it would be, the people who landed at Plymouth, and indeed and indeed, they enjoyed a greater degree of success than the people at Jamestown. You'll remember that I said that at Jamestown, especially in that, that worst winter of all, 1609 to 1610, the population was cut down from 500 to 60. Things were much, much better at Plymouth, where only half the people died where only half the people died. And, and once again, the, the culprit was, was identified. It was this regime of, of collective agriculture. And Governor William Bradford, you know, essentially said, I, I, this is an emergency. I'm going to break with the rules that have been given to me. The, our investors will, will, will be happier that we survive than that we stick you know, uh, to their rules. So he ordered that the pilgrims should set corn every man for his own particular, and in that regard trust themselves. And he assigned to every family a parcel of land, and ranged all boys and youth under some families. So these are uh, young, young men and boys who are not, you know, connected to a particular nuclear family. They were assigned to one. This, Bradford said, had very good success for it made all hands various, very industrious. So as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means. And again, what a transformation, what a bounty. Um, we, we know that this was a success, not only um, because of the, the, the records of William Bradford. Uh, we know that this effort um, on private land to have individual families take responsibility for growing their own corn was a great success because of this photograph. I'm joking. This is not a real photograph of of 17th century Plymouth. But I can imagine, I can imagine that this is how perhaps it would have looked. So private property really saved America. Collectivism really was a threat to America. Um, But the survival of these colonies, these colonies in in Jamestown and Plymouth that did not go the way of Roanoke, that actually managed to hold on um, and and establish themselves and begin to profit and begin to grow in the new world, Um, the success that they would come to experience in the 1630s and 1640s and 1650s, this success um, would lead to new problems and new tragedies. If we go back to Virginia and the fact that in Virginia they are growing uh, tobacco, we, uh, we can reflect upon the fact that Virginia soon had a problem as far as uh, its labor force. There weren't enough laborers to grow all of the tobacco um, that people in Virginia wanted to plant. Tobacco Um, really took Europe by storm. Uh, The Europeans, when they first got their hands on Virginia tobacco, thought it was fantastic. They loved the stuff. They smoked it. They uh, chopped it up and shredded it and chewed it. Um, They chopped it up nice and fine and, and, and brewed it as a tea. They thought that it had medicinal value. I mean, imagine how popular tobacco would be if people thought that it was, like, good for them that it was healthy, that it was medicine, right? The people of Europe loved it. They couldn't get enough of it. The people of Virginia could barely grow enough of it. What to do? To whom should we turn to provide us with labor? The easy answer for the English, and the one that they stuck to, largely for the first several decades, was we need to turn to other Englishmen to provide us with labor. We need to turn to the system of indentured servitude. Indentured servitude made some sense for the inhabitants of Jamestown and the uh, communities that would grow um, up and out around it, um, within the Chesapeake Bay Area, up the James River, um, you know, wherever it was navigable, wherever you could have a plantation, wherever you could grow tobacco and float it to market. If, if, if we could contract with people back in England um, and have them come on over and work for us in Virginia, They thought that would be a good system. The way that indentured servitude um, took shape is typically the arrangement would be. um, You would find a a pretty poor and pretty desperate person in England, because I'll tell you, you know, they solved the problem of starvation in Virginia, but there's still a lot of things going against the colony. Still conflicts with the with the, the native settlers, still conflicts um, you know, with disease and, 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 and death, um, still a, a fairly short life expectancy. Um, it was a, a big dice roll to go to Virginia. But there were some people in, in England who thought that given their opportunities, given their prospects, it was worth that gamble. Because the promise was, if you would agree to be an indentured servant, if you would get on board that boat, you would not only get free passage across the Atlantic, in exchange for your promise to labor for someone else for four or five or six or seven years, at the end of your term of indenture, you would not only get your freedom, you would be given land. And the land was provided to the planters who hired these indentured servants um, through the Virginia House of Burgesses. The Virginia House of Burgesses came up with um, what they called the headright system. And they would say um, to every person, every planter who brought over an indentured servant, for every person you bring over, we'll give you 50 acres. We'll give you 75 acres. And they built that acreage into their contracts with these individuals who agreed to be indentured servants. And I have to tell you, this was a pretty good deal for these planters early on. In part because of life expectancy. In part, because you would have uh, indentured servants come on over and they'd agree to work for a term of, say, seven years. Now, if you're a purely self-interested and not particularly nice Virginia planter, and at seven years you promise not only freedom, but also the 50 acres that you had been given through this subsidy um, known as the headright system, what might you hope would be the longevity of your indentured servant? Maybe six years and 11 months, right? Right Because you'd get to keep that land if they didn't you know reach the end of that that period of time oftentimes that's how it worked out. Um, oftentimes people didn't survive their term of indenture. Of course, as time passed, some things began to change um, on thursday I'm, I'm I'm going to give a lecture about the experience of slavery in America. Of course, it begins in Virginia. It begins in Virginia at a very propitious time. It begins at the same time that, in many respects, political freedom begins in Virginia. You could make the argument that American slavery and American freedom begin at the same place at the same time, Jamestown, 1619. The House of Burgesses is first convened on July 30th, 1619. The House of Burgesses, the first representative government in the Western Hemisphere, the very beginnings of of, of American representative democracy, take root on July 30th, 1619. And you could go to Jamestown today, and not far from the excavated walls of the original fort, there is a church building. And this is an 18th century church building that sits uh, atop the site of a 17th century meeting house. And if you go into this building, um, part of the floor is glassed over because you could look through this clear glass and see the foundation of that original building, that original building within which the House of Burgesses first met. I mean, literally, you could look at the foundation, right, of American representative government. And yet... About 100 yards away, there was a dock. And at some point, we don't know the exact date, but at some point in August of 1619, so anywhere from like a day later to 30 days later, 30 days after the establishment and the first meeting of the House of Burgesses, a a, a boat appeared, a Dutch ship that had blown off course that unloaded its cargo of 20 people from Africa who had been captured and kidnapped and brought against their, wo- their will to the new world to be sold as slaves. So slavery and freedom begin at the same place and at the same time. But, but we should take note of the fact that slavery as it existed in Virginia in the 1620s and 30s and 40s was not yet the institution That later would much more firmly take shape. The the first uh, people who arrived from Africa were a relatively small portion of the population. And it seems as if, for all intents and purposes, they weren't treated that much differently than the white English indentured servants. People from Africa and people from England would be out in the fields working together. What they had in common was that they did not own their own labor. Sometimes, too, they'd be working in the field. This man from Africa who didn't own his own labor, this man from England who didn't own his own labor, with another man from England who owned the labor of both. There is a great deal of evidence that one of the things that did not yet define slavery was permanence. There were a number of people who might have been classified as slaves, yet like white English indentured servants, they were able to secure their freedom. Um, there are a number who we know about. One is a man named Anthony Johnson. This is a, obviously conjectural drawing. But Anthony Johnson uh, was born, according to the records, in, in Angola. He arrived in Virginia around 1620. He secured his freedom in 1622. And after securing his freedom in 1622, and I say securing, it's kind of intentionally a weasel word. We don't know if he bought it. We don't know if he was given it as a reward. We just know that he gained it. After gaining his own freedom, he was able to gain his own land he was able to purchase the freedom of an African woman who became his wife. He was able to purchase the labor of English indentured servants to work on his plantation, as well as African slaves. He lived on the eastern shore of Virginia, right, that part of uh, land on the other side of the Chesapeake Bay that kind of dangles down below Delaware, He got involved in a uh, land dispute, a property line dispute, with his white neighbor. He sued his white neighbor. He went to court. He won. He was a member of the local militia. He was a member of his Anglican parish vestry. And Anthony Johnson is not an anomaly. We know of other people born in Africa, brought to Virginia as slaves who secured their freedom and amazingly blended in with Virginia society. There are a large number of of marriages that took place between people from Africa and people from England, and it wasn't considered that big of a deal. I mean, it's utterly fascinating. It's one of those questions that perhaps we don't think about enough and maybe should think about more. In, In some ways, it seems like a chicken and egg question. What comes first, slavery or racism? It seems as if, in Virginia, what comes first is the institution of slavery, and that in this rough frontier environment, individuals are dealing with each other on a day-to-day basis in fairly equal, fairly open-minded terms. Now, things do begin to change. They begin to change in part because of the success experienced by people like Anthony Johnson and the success experienced by many of the white English indentured servants, many of whom, as the decades pass, will increasingly live to see the end of their terms of indenture. They survive their five or six or seven years. They get their own land. They grow their own tobacco. By now, by the 1640s and 1650s and 1660s, the demand for tobacco in Europe is beginning to level off. And yet every year, more acreage is put under the plow. Every year, more tobacco is harvested. Every year, the supply increases. By the time you get to uh, the 1670s, there are so many English indentured servants who have survived their terms of indenture and gained their own freedom and acquired their own land that, that they have become uh, a block of, of, of the public that has some political influence. And their agenda is to push West into Virginia, to secure even more land, you know, uh, whether by compulsion um, and force, or whether through negotiation with the Native Americans who live to their West, it doesn't much matter to them. They want to secure this land. They want the government in Jamestown, the House of Burgesses, the royal governor, William Barclay. They want them to send troops to the West to secure their claims to land, to protect them against the Indians. They they appoint as their spokesman an Englishman named Nathaniel Bacon. Bacon, a member of the nobility himself, becomes sort of the leader of these former indentured servants. He goes to uh, Jamestown. It's here that we find perhaps one of the first uh, examples of insincere political correctness in what would become the United States, the uh, the people of, of the House of Burgesses, right, the large planters, the great landowners, the grandees of the Chesapeake, and Governor William Barclay himself say, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. Thou mustn't take the lands of the native peoples. We mustn't. We mustn't violate the agreements that we have with them. We must live in peace and harmony with them. We shouldn't take their land. Now, of course, of course, these people, these same people had no moral reservations about taking Indian land for their own benefit. But now they use this as an excuse to prevent the further cultivation of of acreage. They use this as a way to try to block more competition from these former indentured servants. The more land that is cultivated, the more tobacco that is grown, the lower the prices um, will be, the less money they will make. So they shake their heads no, and as a result, we have what comes to be known in 16, six as Bacon's Rebellion. Nathaniel Bacon, he leads these group of former indentured servants. First, they, they go west and they attack and kill a number of Native Americans. Then they go east, and they burn down Jamestown. The government of William Barclay is in disarray. Finally, it gets its act together. Um, Across the James River into Surrey County, Virginia, uh, flees Bacon and his rebels. Nathaniel Bacon um, and others are going to hole up in this house in Surrey County, which has come to be known as uh, Bacon's Castle. Um, This is what counted for a castle in the 1600s. Um, and here Nathaniel Bacon will die of, of what the records describe as the bloody flux. The rest of the, uh, the rebellion is, is also going to sort of wither away. But it's at this point that the government of Virginia finalizes what one historian has described as sort of an unthinking decision. An unthinking decision because never do you find anyone in the House of Burgesses or any Virginia political leader saying, you know, outright, you know what? We need to be done with indentured servitude. We need to be done with this form of labor because it is working now against us. Since white English indentured servants eventually gain their freedom and gain their own land and cultivate tobacco and compete with us economically and cause problems for us like Bacon's Rebellion, We need to dispense with indentured servitude. We need a new labor solution. What about these slaves? What about these enslaved people from Africa? Perhaps they don't have to be treated quite as well as we have in the past. Perhaps we could take away some of their rights. Perhaps we could make slavery something that is guaranteed to be permanent. Perhaps we should make it so that slaves will be owned forever, as well as all of their descendants. Perhaps we should make it so that enslaved people will never compete with us economically. And and already, even before Bacon's rebellion, they had begun to pass a series of laws which systematically made life much more difficult for people of African descent who lived in Virginia. Black people and white people were not allowed to marry. People with black skin were not allowed to own guns. Maybe most devastating of all, people of African origin were not allowed to enter into legally binding contracts. They had no standing in court, they could not Enforce agreements that they had made with their white neighbors. You know, Anthony Johnson, Tony Longo, other people of, of, from Africa, about whom we know so much because we have records of them, they just disappear from the records. They passed a law making it against the law to manumit, to free a slave. Slavery became a permanent condition. And an institution that was designed, designed through the political process. I mean, you know, there's rent seeking going on here, right? They are trying to make it so that they will not have to deal with with competing um, English farmers. They are trying to limit their competition, these people in positions of power. And, and, you know, it's a familiar story. This is what people um, in legislatures or people who have control over legislatures or influence over legislatures, this is not something um, that has never been seen before. This is not something that will never be seen again, sadly. But this is the beginning of, of the greatest tragedy in American history, the tragedy of slavery. There's another tragedy um, that's unfolding in uh, Massachusetts. In, in Massachusetts... Um, you have people who will be persecuted not because they look like Anthony Johnson. Uh, you have people who are persecuted for a different reason. Um, you know, the early pilgrims who landed at Plymouth, they eventually experienced a great deal of success. Um, they also eventually found that they had new neighbors. In the 1630s, there was the great wave of uh, Puritan migration FROM ENGLAND TO AMERICA, THE THEOLOGICAL DIFFERENCES BETWEEN THE PILGRIMS AND THE PURITANS, um, FROM OUR PERSPECTIVE AT LEAST, ARE REALLY NOT THAT GREAT. Uh, THESE TWO COLONIES, THE MASSACHUSETTS BAY COLONY OF THE PURITANS AND THE PLYMOUTH COLONY OF THE PILGRIMS, WOULD ORIGINALLY, I'M SORRY, WOULD EVENTUALLY MERGE uh, INTO ONE. THERE WOULD BE A LOT OF INTERMIXTURE BETWEEN THE TWO GROUPS. One thing that united them was originally a desire to kind of insulate themselves in many respects from the rest of the world. They were very focused on establishing in this new and improved England, the shining city on a hill that they so often spoke of, this great example, this great beacon for the rest of the world. They wanted to create a civilization so so remarkable So beautiful, so brilliant, that people back in old England would look west across the horizon and see glittering in the distance their shining example. And and yet, for all their religious fervor, as the generations passed, things would begin to change. I mean, the first generation of pilgrims and Puritans could not have been more committed to their faith, right? I mean, they'd risk their lives for it. The children they raised, would you expect them to be pretty religious? Probably so, right, given, given their parents. The grandkids, hmm, maybe a little bit less so. The great-grandkids, yeah, I'm a Puritan. It's cool. Girls in my youth group are hot, right? And, and this increasing worldliness... This transformation of these Puritans into Yankees who are increasingly engaged commercially with the rest of the world, who are exchanging not only goods but also ideas, brings about a great deal of tension within these New England communities. And one place that experienced a great deal of tension in the 1690s is Salem. Now, Salem is an interesting place. It's interesting because By this point, it's the second largest port city in Massachusetts, second only to Boston. And we know what port cities are like, right? What do we find in port cities? Sailors. And we know what sailors are like. Um, Sailors are not like the original um, pilgrims and Puritans who landed in Massachusetts. They have different habits of the mind and different interests. Let's leave it at that. And, and, And so the urban part of Salem, developed in ways that were really quite different than the traditional rural part of Salem. And it seems as if that is at the origin of the witchcraft hysteria that would rock Salem in the early 1690s. More than 64 people would be detained on accusations of witchcraft. And about 20 people would be executed as a result. Now, again, there are a number of theories about, you know, why there was this this outbreak of witchcraft hysteria in Salem, Massachusetts. One theory um, is that it was very rainy and a fungus grew on the the wheat and the corn that they consumed. Um, and This fungus had psychedelic properties and that it caused people to act in, in bizarre ways. That's one possibility. Uh, Another possibility is is that uh, there's a gender factor going on. There's an interesting book called The Devil in the Shape of a Woman by a professor named Carol Carlson, which which notes that although there were men who were accused and condemned for witchcraft, of, of the 20 who were put to death, 16 were women. And these women tended to have something in common. They were heads of households. They were women who, uh, because of the death of their husband, were in charge of their own property. These were women, perhaps, who were seen as economic competition to the men. So that's a very interesting theory. And then there's another theory, which I think encompasses um, the theory I just mentioned, and it has to do with geographic tensions. When you divide Salem between the commercially engaged, you know, relatively urbanized portion by the harbor and the more traditional area of semi-subsistence family farms in the interior, you see a pretty compelling dynamic. On this map of Salem, you can see all the people who were accused of witchcraft. You can see their households designated by a W. All of the people who are accusing them, their households, are designated with an A. And all of the people who are defending the accused witches, their place of residence is identified with a D. The, the pattern is clear. The people who are accused of witchcraft, the people who are defending the people accused of witchcraft, they live in the urbanized, commercially engaged, cosmopolitan part of Salem, the accusers live in the area that is more along the lines of a traditional semi-subsistence Puritan community. Was, Was it resentment over the success of the people, the commercial success of the people, the wealth of the people who lived in the more cosmopolitan part of Salem? Is that what is at the origin of the witchcraft trials? This seems to be pretty compelling evidence for that. The the result, of course, is tragic. But unlike slavery, fortunately the witchcraft hysteria of New England is relatively short-lived. The the executions at Salem are, are, are not going to be repeated in such numbers in New England ever again. But it seems pretty clear that there's one theory that we know isn't true one theory about the witchcraft outbreak. It's not that a bunch of people got on broomsticks and started flying around. They didn't do that. They weren't really witches. They were falsely accused. And they appear to have been falsely accused by people who merely wanted to eliminate the threat that they seemed to pose. The the, the economic jealousies that their success engendered their openness, perhaps, to to the new ideas and cosmopolitanism that was made possible by their increased engagement with the outside world. In in both of these instances, in in, in both Jamestown and Plymouth, we not only see economic collectivism undermining success until a regime of private property is uh, made apparent, We also see, later on, political collectivism, group decision-making made by legislators, made by courts, in accordance with the law, working against the liberty of innocent individuals. In, in, In many ways, we can find triumph in the history of early America. But as is the case, I think, with all people everywhere, it's also easy to find tragedy. Thank you very much for your time. So uh, if I'm not mistaken, we have um, a little bit of time for for questions. Yes, sir.
0: Um, Yeah, I I was wondering, You know, on this whole idea of collective agriculture, you know, where did they get this utopian idea from? And is there were there any examples in England, in Europe that of success?
1: It's a good question. Uh, I I don't know that they were uh, basing their their plans off of any sort of practical um, experiment that was um, you know normalized or regularized uh, in, in England. I, I think essentially. These are the sorts of decisions that people make when they're sitting in London and they're trying to plan out exactly how everything is going to work. Um, They're not thinking very much about the enterprise of growing food. What they're focused on is for the people in in Virginia, you know, finding gold, um, for the people in Massachusetts, trading furs. um, And and I think they're just assuming that, yeah, just throw everyone into that field. They'll all do the work. Um, It'll work out. They'll share in the harvest. It'll be enough. Um, But it's the leaders on the ground, you'll know, in both of these instances, you know, who realize what the problem is and who make the the fundamental change. Yes, sir.
0: Um, Somewhat along the same lines, were the Native Americans in Virginia and um, Massachusetts, did they have a collectivist agricultural system? And if so, what made it work for them?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and uh, it's one that I always find difficult to answer, because, of course, if we know one thing about, um, you know, the story of Native Americans in what became the United States, um, we know that there are many things to know about Native Americans, that there's a great multiplicity in, 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 in you know, the, the different tribal nations that existed and the ways that, that they, uh, you know, provided for themselves. In, in Virginia, um, you have some agriculture, um, as well as hunting and gathering. Um, It appears as if the uh, the people who are you know growing food as Indians are doing so as extended family units So I I think they had the incentives, right? And they certainly enjoy a good deal of success They're providing corn, you know to the white inhabitants of Jamestown Um, They're selling it to them. They have a surplus that they could uh, you know put up for trade um, and, you know, they, they grow, I mean, in a way, it's, it's collective, right? As a family, it's a collective unit, it's this extended family. But an extended family has ties that bind in a way that's, you know, different than the individuals who are, you know, thrown out into the common field of, of Virginia.
0: Thank you very much. My name is Brandon Yates. I'm a student at Colorado Christian University and I trace my heritage back to two people in the Mayflower, um, Richard Warren and Helen Cook. So all this history is very interesting to Uh me. Uh, My question was, as you had tobacco and slavery taking off in the South, what kept the North colonies like Massachusetts going? Was that also slavery? Um, Was it furs? Was it industry? Because by the time of the Civil War and even before that, you had two very different uh, mercantile cultures in those two areas. So I was wondering what roots
1: of those cultures were planted during the colonial area. Yeah, yes. thank you for that question. It, and uh, congratulations to your ancestors for surviving. Um, we're, we're all very glad that they did. And, uh, and it's interesting, it's, and it's not just you. I, I read somewhere, um, I can't remember the source, uh, so I'm, I'm hesitant to put this out there as, um, you know, a fact. But something like 10% of Americans, um, they may not realize it, but something like 10% of Americans today Um, could trace their ancestry back to Plymouth, Massachusetts, back to the Mayflower, which is uh, an amazing number given the relatively small number of people on that boat and the even smaller number of people who would, you know, survive to have children of their own. Um, One of the the things about that that makes it plausible is just the sheer number of generations um, that you go back to the the Mayflower and the fact that the success of the, the Massachusetts experiment is owed largely to the fertility of the people of Massachusetts. On average, throughout the 17th century, the 18th century, and on into the 19th century, the average um, woman in New England gave birth eight times. And for the English-speaking North American colonies as a whole, the English-speaking population of North America doubled every 20 years. All the way up through the 19th century, and I think the success that that occurs in New England—it's it's it's an interesting question, right? And and we see it uh, not just in colonial America, but we see it in other contexts as well. Um, you know, think about a nation uh, that's rich with natural resources, say Saudi Arabia—you know, tons and tons and tons of oil—and then think of a place that isn't rich with natural resources, a place like say. Singapore, right, or Hong Kong, you know, wh- which would you expect to generate more prosperity? A lot of times in the long run, it, it, it's not the natural resources that are going to make a big difference. And it's not that New England is devoid of natural resources, it's just that they don't have a growing season and they don't have um, a soil that lends itself to plantation agriculture, to cash crop agriculture. You, you can grow rice in South Carolina. You can grow sugarcane in the Caribbean. The English colonies there. Um, you could grow tobacco in Virginia. You could grow wheat and oats in Pennsylvania. In New England, they're growing, you know, like Thanksgiving dinner vegetables: uh, pumpkins and gourds and squash and some corn. And you know, they have these semi-subsistence family farms. But their their population growth causes them to expand economically. Um, Pretty early on, they begin to engage uh, commercially with the rest of the world. Uh, first, just in places like Boston and Salem, but increasingly throughout New England, um, they'll be uh, you know, instrumental in the whaling um, business, the fishing business. Um, there'll be, uh, you know, merchants of the seas engaging in a whole uh, deal of trade. Um, there are a number of mill towns that, that fairly early on will take root. Um, there's a great book uh, that focuses on Springfield, Massachusetts by Stephen Innes um, called Labor in a New Land that, I, that I'd recommend about the changes that that brings about. Um, but all this economic development, it tends, to, um, it tends to challenge that original vision what this this you know new and improved England is going to be? So it's a fascinating question. Thank you. Um, yes.
0: Um, so I'm actually from Salem and a Mayflower descendant, so we're probably cousins way back. <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, my question is why why is this not the narrative that's taught? Because growing up, you know, what I learned is that the first winter they got there in November, they didn't know what they were doing. They were from Bristol. They sure townspeople. Um, that's why they all died. The next summer, the Wampanoag taught them about the three sisters and putting the fish heads in the ground. Yeah. And that was what it was. So it seems, you know, when I was growing up, we still had the Cold War going on. It seems like that would be the perfect time to teach, you know, look at this communism. It almost ruined our country. Yeah. Why, why is that not the story that's told?
1: That's, it's, a, it's a great question. It's a tough one because I, it's hard to explain why something doesn't happen. Um, I, I think that, that there are a number of people who you know just generally aren't aren't aware of it, um, you know. But what, once you discover these statements, I mean, you know, th- th- I'm not showing you uh, contested records here. I mean, you know, this really is, uh, you know, the word of, of Thomas Dale, the, of Ralph Hamer, of, of uh, you know Bradford. Um, these are real people who were really making this observation. Um, so it, it seems as if you know clearly this is a big part of the story. Um, why is it not? Uh, included, maybe that says some, some something about the bias of the American historical profession, maybe. Um, you know, maybe it says something, too, just about the degree to which when we're given a narrative, we tend to stick with it and we tend not to question it. Um, I think that has a, a powerful force as well. Yes. I am going to guess that the answer is yes. Uh, and I'm going to guess that the answer is, is yes for, you know, most of the new settlements that followed after Um, Plymouth and and Jamestown. You know, uh, I'll I'll go back to my own personal roots. I'm I'm from Stratford, Connecticut, which was established in 1639. Um, It was a very progressive community um, in that while it took them uh, until the 1690s uh, to hang their witches in Salem, we hanged our first witch in 1651. But in Stratford, it was I know it was private property from the get-go. Um, there was a commons where, for grazing, but for, for the cultivation of food, they divided it up into individual lots. And I suspect that th- that was the norm um, for, for most settlements. Um, and, and, and in part, I think that's the source of their, their success. We, we learned from those mistakes, and then it appears we, we forgot what we learned. Yes, OK. I'll catch you later on a couple of other questions, but I am a a U.S. history teacher and I noticed that one of the leaders that you did not mention was John Smith. Yeah. And a lot of the history books do focus on the fact that during the starving time he happened to have left Jamestown and the relationship with the Native Americans and perhaps the Native Americans actually played a role in in uh, intentionally kind of. Well, I mean, the native so conflict with the Native Americans definitely plays a role in cutting down the population. Um, Help from Native Americans definitely plays the role in sustaining the population. They have a very uneven relationship with Native Americans. John Smith personally has a very uneven relationship with the Native Americans. Um, And, you you know, I think they they would have starved to death had it not been for them. Although at at certain points, the Native Americans make up their minds, you know, we're going to try to wipe these people out. They're not worth keeping around. Anyway, I guess I'm not either, because Tom is glaring at me. So I appreciate your attention. Thank you.